You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 288. What people are ashamed of usually makes a good story. F. Scott Fitzgerald. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Today we go inside the twisted mind of Jim Ools, the writer of one of my favorite films of all time, Fight Club. And after listening to this episode, I just have fallen more and more in love with Jim. I just have to say it. Enjoy today's episode with guest host, Dave Bullis. Thank you for having me on. You know, you are, well, thank you for coming on because you are a person who I've been trying to get on for, I think, almost a year now. Yeah, but that's that's totally my fault. And that's because of like, I keep trying to find what's the right perfect time. It's like, you know, you know, you can't find the right perfect window of time. So I finally decided stop trying to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, well, the real story is, Jim, is I've been wearing you down and kind of stalking you on Twitter and Facebook. And finally, you're just like, look, if I agree to this, will you leave me alone, kid? And I'm like, sure. Why not? <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Well, I, I wasn't supposed to talk about that according to the uh, law enforcement that's right here in the room <laughs> with me. I wasn't supposed to <laughs> bring that up so they, they want you to keep anyway. me talking so they can trace the call right yeah yeah right <laughs> definitely keep talking yeah <laughs> so you know jim just to get started uh you know you actually got started off with uh i mean it would what would probably be like a grand slam in in terms in movie terms because you started off with fight club i mean that uh you know just just be uh writing the adaptation of the novel by, uh, I think it's Chuck Palinuk, I think is how you pronounce his last name. Yeah, yeah, Pal- Palinuk, actually. Palinuk. Oh, Palinuk. Even, oh. it's, I know, it's spelled different than it sounds, but yeah. Yeah, and uh, by the way, I actually got to write him a letter one time, and he sent it back to me. Very, very uh, interesting guy, too, but, um, you know. A, a, oh, he is. He's great. He's like, uh, he's great, and he's participated in a lot of strange things, so he's got a lot of stories, really. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's it's funny. I actually knew a a a person who used to do like um, uh, I think she worked at a Borders or a Barnes and Noble, and she said whenever he did a book event, she goes, "It was like the it was so fun because all the people would come out." Uh, but she's like, "It also was kind of a little edgy because 
you know, some of his fans and some of the stuff that he would write, you know what I mean? They kind of bring out the people that, uh, you know, um, let's just say are a little more outgoing. Let's just let, let's, let's choose. Oh yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Energetic, outgoing extroverts who happen to have a lot of tattoos and piercings and stuff. And, uh, that kind of thing, right? Intimidating people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although exactly. you know what's funny about Chuck is Chuck is you know he's pretty tall. I am too. He but he's like really built out and everything, mus- muscular. But he is like he talks like the softest, kindest voice, you know, in the world. <laughs> it's just a, it's kind of like it. It doesn't go with the image, because he looks like. Like I'll throw you off a bridge, you know, if you get get on the wrong side. <laughs> well, I, I guess that that that's the, so. It's kind of like the Mike Tyson syndrome, then, where you know, looks very intimidating. Then you hear him talk, and he's very soft spoken. I guess, except uh, Chuck's voice isn't that high. Mike Tyson has a high voice, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. <laughs> he does get, uh, but. <laughs> but uh but yeah I, you know he was such an interesting guy uh to just to get a correspondence from and uh i know he does you know a lot of really cool things in the writing community uh i mean there's even a thing he does on lit reactor where it sells out in like seconds um where he does like an online class but uh but you know just such a such a really interesting guy and you know when he wrote fight club which i actually talked to him about that's what i really talked to him about was because i'm always interested in people's like first outing like their first you know, project out the gate. So basically with you, you know, his first project was Fight Club that actually got published. And then your first project was the adaptation of, you know, uh, of, of Fight Club. So, you know, how, how did that all ha- come together uh, for you? Yeah, Jim? well, actually, I was I was writing the adaptation from the manuscript before the publishers actually put the ship, put it on shelves. Because I remember the day we got a, a copy, me and Fincher got a copy of it the published book, but, uh, yeah, I was working off a manuscript at the beginning. Um, now I had been sent the manuscript by somebody I knew worked for a producer said every studio and producer in town has passed on this, but I'm sending it to you because I just know you're going to like it just for fun. And who knows? Just, Keep your attention on it and see if anything does happen. So I read it and it was like, why? I mean, first of all, it blew me away. Secondly, I thought it would be such a great gig to be paid to adapt this, even though it will never be made to a movie. But just to be paid to write an adaptation would be a great gig, right? (laughs) And um, so I. I had, you know, with the help of my agent, we were like seeing, well, everybody's pretty much passed on this. And then that was around the time that Fox 2000 was created and Laura Ziskin was running it. And she's kind of like, you know, I don't know. She wanted to do really out there stuff. And the book was considered unadaptable probably because it is a monologue. The whole book is like a monologue. An actor could do it. I mean, Chuck even told me he started by writing a monologue, meaning he wanted an actor to do it on stage. I, you know, I mean, it wasn't going to be that long, obviously. <laughs> but um, 
Um, it didn't have a lot of fully fleshed out scenes in it. Um, they were described, I guess, by the guy, the narrator. Um, and uh, so it had, it, it got branded unadaptable by everybody, right? And of course, that I, I think Laura was the type of person, if you say that, that's like a red flag in front of a bull, basically. She, <laughs> <laughs> she was uh, kind of like, no, no, really? Oh. And, uh, but she wouldn't hire a writer until she hired a director. So um, by this point, I started getting people, other people at Fox 2000. And the producers were Ross Bell and Josh Donner. Them. I mean, I was, I was having meetings with them that started to turn into like, we're actually, you're doing this with me, you know, even though no one said anything like that. And um, they made Fox 2000 aware of me. And, uh, and I happened to have a spec at the time that was... Uh, um, I don't know. It made it made it, it, there wasn't a blacklist then, but it made some kind of list of best ones not produced, original specs. I don't know what it was. So yeah, it, it kind of had a reputation. This, this script, and that was what everyone read as a sample. And um, I kind of already knew Fincher. I mean, I'd say he's somewhere between an acquaintance and a friend by that because there was this place called the Patagides where all these people would hang out like Shane Black who I knew from UCLA. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And uh, Fincher was one of the gang because you know a good portion were from the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, who had moved to L.A. So we kind of knew each other. Then he liked that script I'm talking about. And uh, nobody, still nobody ever said, at this point, you're hired to me, right? And finally, there's this huge lunch scheduled. It's going to have Laura... Ziskin, uh, it's going to have um, other Fox 2000 uh, executives, it's going to have Fincher and me. And the idea is, oh, and the producers, of course, Ross Bell and Josh Don. And um, so, and the idea was, I'm going to have to sell myself or they'll move on. So it was sort of like, it's, we're all having lunch. You're going to tell us why you have an idea of how to do this. It's blah, blah, blah. Well, like most writers, I, I don't like pitching. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So um, what I did was I started this group conversation among everybody about how, you know, would this work? Would that work? Could you do this? Could you and it went on until the lunch was, oh, oh, first, sorry, I left out an important detail. I got there early enough to know what table it was going to be. I waited. And the next person who arrived was Fincher. We kind of, since we knew each other, we shook hands. Hey, well, 
And he sat down, and then I made sure I sat down right next to him. And then everybody else came. So it already looked <laughs> like, like I was connected to Fisher, you know. That's um, a smart move. That's so a anyway, smart move, Jim. <laughs> Thank you. Um, then, yes, I ran this conversation, which never was a pitch by me. But it was a very interesting conversation about the obstacles of trying to, uh, you know, turn it into a film. And uh, Kevin McCormick, who was basically, uh, you know, Laura Ziskin's main person there, I think, at Fox 2000 at the time. We're leaving. The lunch is over. And Fisher's talking about when I should start on the thing. Nothing's been said. Kevin McCormick, as we're walking out, says, you know, Jim, you didn't really give a substantive pitch of what you're going to do. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> but he didn't do anything about it, right? And the next thing I know, my agent's just making a deal. And that's that, you know. And I'm starting the first draft. So it was, you know, a little bit ethereal how it all happened. <laughs> You know that is a a good strategy, though, uh, Jim. It's all about appearance, right? So you have to you have to always look and kind of kind of set things up so to set yourself up for the win wins. You know. Uh, yeah, and you know the th- what's funny about that is I didn't think, I didn't have that idea until I just accidentally got there early, and then that's when I became cunning. All of a sudden, it's like I've never thought of that before, and then. I was like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get this. I'm gonna sit next to Fincher. It was like it all came to me. Like I don't know. Like I have a split personality myself, and the other personality came out and said, "This is what you're gonna do." <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of that kind of ties into Fight Club too, having that split personality. Right, right. I, suddenly, I was Tyler Durden. And by the way, you know, in the the, the uh, first person narrator of the book doesn't have a name ever there's no name and well, it's just uh, a narrator right right and uh, i think i talked to ross bell and josh don josh Donnan at some point i can't pinpoint it but he stopped being a producer became an agent again which he'd been before and so it only left ross bell for the first draft and Fincher was doing something like just expecting me to just get the first draft in and then we'll, then we'll look at it and talk about it, right? So um, um, I forgot what started this, but what were, <laughs> what were we saying? <laughs> it got me onto this part of the conversation. We're talking about um, Fight Club and dual, dual personalities and alter egos. Oh, yeah, no name. So, yeah, we discussed. I think it was most, mostly me and Ross Bell. We should put the word narrator down as the name. And I said, you know, that's going to just get really, really tiresome. Narrator goes to the door. Narrator laughs. Narrator says, it's just, I mean, in the, in the, in the place where you put the character name before the dialogue, okay, not too bad. But in all the action descriptions and everything, it's like, Okay, well, we're going to name it in the script 
for us, it's never in dialogue. It's never in the movie. But we have to call him something. So I said, Jack, I mean, what's the first name that comes to mind? I mean, <laughs> make an example. Yeah. All right. So a guy comes in, Jack, and he said, you know, I mean, it's the first thing anyone picks up is Jack. And I said, Jack, yeah. All right. We'll call the character Jack. Um, so that I could write Jack in the screenplay instead of narrator all the time, right? Um, and then somewhere along the line, we found out the Reader's Digest uh, completely denied permission to use their old series of articles, which was uh, like, I am Joe's heart, I am Joe's liver, which is referred to in the book because the house on Paper Street has a billion old magazines all over the place. And um, so we said, well, we'll just change it to Jack. And legal cleared it. Yeah, if you say I am Jack's whatever organ, they can't do anything. You don't name the magazine? I am Jack's liver. They can't do anything. Okay. So that actually gets said. And some people think that the uh, Edward Norton was actually saying when he said, I am Jack, whatever, the name of his character. But he wasn't. It was the name of the articles, and then he made parodies of them. You know, like, I am Jack's complete lack of surprise. Uh, actually, I bring that up because I had to write. I wanted him to say it out loud because we're, I knew we'd be so used to him narrating and having his own comments that I wrote. I couldn't just leave off the VO because I think it's a mistake. So in addition to leaving off parentheses VO after Jack, I wrote in the parentheses below his name, said out loud, <laughs> because he's been thinking this all along. I am Jack's steaming outrage. I am whatever. And the boss says something to him, and he actually says to the boss, I am Jack's complete lack of surprise. And the boss says, what? <laughs> and it's, the, it's the only time he actually said something that he normally does in narration, but he said it out loud. Like, and I thought that also shows that his mind, is, there's less division between what he thinks and what he says, because he's coming apart, Right. Uh, right. And so as, as the alter egos go back and forth, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it, this was still before he said that out loud before he discovered the truth. You know, you know so, so Jim, just to, just to ask a quick question there, you know, when you, he, when, when people hear things like about screenwriting rules and et cetera, about, you know, you shouldn't do this in a screenplay, you shouldn't do that in a screenplay. Um, uh, if somebody were to do something like this in a screenplay and they submitted it to a competition or what, or, or an agent or what have you, you know, what kind of response do you think they would get uh, if they did something like that? Do you think somebody would think it was, uh, you know, original or do you think somebody would say like, oh, you know, you, you have to kind of write a, a cut and dry screenplay as the first one before. And then when you get a little cash, you can move you, on. To um, right. But what, what's to do what in this 
Uh, no, just like, you know, kind of how things are, you know, like he's writing parentheses set out loud, you know, just kind of like to try to either, you know, in a, in a competition or even just sending it to an agent. You know, do you, do you think that they would ever, ever get any kind of um, backlash if they did something like, like uh, that? Yeah, the only way that would work, I mean, it wouldn't be a good idea unless you had already established that this guy thinks these things and it's P.O. when he says them. And you do it repeatedly enough over a long enough period of time that you make a point of saying, this time he's saying it out loud, that'd be okay. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But if it was just out of the blue and there was no setup for it, it probably would look like, uh, you know, not good form. I guess. Well, because you know, you always hear about the screenplay rules, and you always kind of wonder, or at least I wonder, you know, how 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 much should they be really? How much do they actually carry weight? You know what I mean? Because uh, I've read so many books on on screenwriting, and also you, you hear so many people talk about it. We actually start to wonder about all the different rules, and you know where they actually came from, and if they even if some of them even matter anymore. You know what I, you know you know what I mean, Jim? Because I mean, I'm sure you get a lot of questions yeah. too, because you know um, you, you still run the uh, the writers lab out there in L.A., and I'm sure you get a, a, a ton of people saying, "Hey, well, I heard this and I heard that." Uh, I mean, do you get that a lot? Well, you know, I think that they, you know, it, they're always relaxing the rules. They're always getting, you know, it's it's always been a process of slowly becoming more and more, you know, however you want to write it. I mean, within certain parameters, you know, I mean, they have to know if something is what we call a slug line, you know, the shock, exterior, interior, living room, day. They have to know that after that there is um, action or description. They have to know that, that when someone's talking, they have to see the name where you put the character name in all caps, the center of the page, and then their dialogue. So some things have to look like a screenplay. But in terms of other rules, you're getting into style questions. Because there's actually a style beyond just obeying the format. Like, for example, you don't do too much directing on paper. That's not good. You know, shot his face, shot his watch, shot his feet, step into the shot. You know, I mean, it's not not a good idea. So screenwriters write in uh, master scene. You know, they say where it's taking place, and then they just write the scene. Now, are there exceptions to that? Of course there are. And there are important ones that you can use. One of, one of them, as the first example I always give to where you're actually talking about the camera is pulling back to reveal more than what you were seeing at the top of the scene. It, it, thrillers and comedies use this a lot, which is like, you know, a comedy... Guy says to another guy, I will never do something as boring as fishing. Cut to, it's the other guy he was talking to, the guy who likes to fish, just sitting there with a fishing pole and a boat. And you pull back to reveal that on the other end of the boat is the guy who said, I will never do something as boring as fishing, and he's fishing. Right? You first thought it was just the guy who likes to fish there, 
as you pulled back and you revealed the guy who just screamed that he'd never do it is sitting there also fishing. So that's a reveal. And, you know, thrillers do it a lot by showing the lead character, whatever they're doing, pulling back so that they reveal the killer, which the lead character doesn't see. You know, but we do now. Those those are the things you definitely do in writing. Um, that is part of your narrative and storytelling. It's not telling somebody how to shoot the film. It's it's saying I'm you know this is the intention when I start the scene, and then I'm going to reveal somebody or something. So that's all right. You know, that's an example of something where you, you know, don't have to just write in master scene. You can have a moment like that. Um, I think writers, I mean, from what I've read, they've basically started to go <laughs> way into, like, what the camera does. Now, I don't know if that's wise, if somebody's starting out. I don't know. Um, I know that there's a cringe factor to seeing something that looks like you're directing the whole movie on paper. So I would say you use it when the storytelling is saying that, you know, the suspense thriller, if you're writing it, you have the right to say that we think there's this fairly peaceful scene with the lead character and then you pull back to reveal that the killer is right behind this tree, you know, whatever it is. That's, that is right. That is part of screen. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I have to go down which rules we're talking about one by one to know what my answer to your question is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. I should have. I should have been more specific, Jim. But I know. Uh, I I know it was kind of a blanket statement. But uh, you know, you just hear different rules of screenwriting. I mean, a, they even did one on script notes one time where they kind of went through these rules, quote unquote. Um, next time, I mean, uh, next time I have to send them to you. But uh, they kind of went through those. Uh, script notes is the podcast by Craig Mason and John August. But uh, oh yeah, no, I know, I know. Uh, John August is such a great source of information. He is just amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, and so- uh, I mean, he has things that people agree with, people don't. Like, for instance, courier is what typewriters look like, right? That's why they—that's why screenplays are still done in courier, Vermont, because on the typewriter back in the days when there was only typewriter, uh, a page equals a minute. What they don't want you to suddenly start having smaller type or bigger type. They want it to look like that old typewriter type, and that's Courier, 12-point font. That's what they wanted in, period. Um, So I don't even know what that point I was making. (laughs) (laughs) See, See, I told you, I told you, Jim, I get too heady, and now we're going down that path. Right, right, right. No, I like that part. Yeah. Well, what are the rules? What are, what are the rules you're talking? Oh, oh no, wait. Sorry, I know what I was going to say. John August 
agrees with, and a lot of people do, that in Courier 12.5, which looks like a typewriter used to look like, if you put a period, it should have two spaces after it. And the reason for it on typewriter was with that font, um, a period with only one space, sort of, you could miss that it, I guess, your eyes go over it. You might not, it doesn't make the statement that this, this sentence ends and this one begins. Um, so I know that John thinks we should be two, two spaces after it, which is the traditional way of using that font. But other fonts, since now we have computers and thousands of fonts, right? Don't necessarily need two spaces after a period. And some people brought it back to screenplays to Courier 12 point. I'm only putting one space after a period. John says two. I guess half the business says two, half the business says one. You know, and it's kind of a mocking. Oh well, you know, if you want to give away that you're older, put two spaces. You know, so you know, people are rapidly only putting one space after a period because, by God, they're not going to look older. You know, uh, <laughs> but um, that's an example of something that you know actually is so inconsequential. I don't even know why I talked about it. So you've got to give me another rule. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know. Some of them all the top of my head. I have to look at that list. Uh, that was actually because uh, that list was more like definitive with kind of a hard and fast rules. But but um, Jim, are, are we out of time? No. Oh, no, no. No, we're not. Actually, uh, uh, the uh, thing that I was going to go to is starting like, 45 minutes later than it was originally. So I'm not, I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay. Awesome. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep going. So I, I have a, I have a ton of other questions, but uh, you know, so, you know, I, so okay. just, to, just to get back, you know, cause we were talking about, uh, you know, uh, just screenwriting in general. So, I know you, you you do a lot of work with the Writers Lab. Um, you actually also did the uh, the class on Creative Live, you know. So you know what? Yeah. Else? Oh, um, the Writers Lab. I just wanted to say this real quick, just so it's not publicly out there. What you're calling the Writers Lab? There, it's still going on. Called Safe House. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. That's okay. the name. I came up with because the idea is um, it's only the writer actors that are involved in it that are there. You can't bring in someone who is could be a buyer. And the purpose of that is experimentation. I mean, just complete experimentation. You can do stuff and it might not work. But you don't want to do something that doesn't work in front of buyers. So we don't want that atmosphere, right? Um, so I call it safe house. It's, it's definitely still going. And, uh, so, I mean, you, 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 so you still do that and then you still do, you know, you have the class of creative live, you know, just about the, the art and craft of screenwriting, uh, you know, so as you kind of have done this journey of screenwriting over the years, um, 
So, you know, again, you, you, you were able to break in in, in 1989 uh, with Fight Club. You know, as you kind of, uh, you know, have, have gotten all this knowledge over the years, you know, what are some of the, you know, some of the, the things that you've seen or some of the advice that you could give uh, to, to people who are out there just starting their own screenplay right now? Well, I mean, uh, I've, I've probably said this before and somewhere else, but I mean, I think you should uh, people people who are beginning can uh, get really obsessed with their, with their first script, like this first script. It, it's just they make they're stuck with it. It's like I've got to get this perfect, and it's and it has to be the one. And I think that when you I think you should write all the way through a first draft of it. Type the end. You're all the way through. And then take your attention. Uh, You know, in the typewriter days, they would have said, throw it in a drawer. So metaphorically, throw it in a drawer. Um, And start writing a different screenplay. Because, okay, then you have to do that. Then get all the way through the first draft of screenplay number two. And then take your attention off of it. And then a third screenplay all the way through to the end, first draft of it. Then go back to the first. Because the kind of objectivity and even the wisdom you've gained by writing two more screenplays, makes you a different person looking at your first screenplay. You're a different writer. Um, you're a better writer, really. No matter what, you're a better writer. Um, if you've done three, and you're going to look at it differently, and you're going to get hit with a lot of great ideas that would probably never have occurred to you. If you hadn't had that much time away from it. And then when you've worked on that, well, your path is set. What do you go to? Replay number two. Wow. You're looking at that one like you never looked at it. Now, if you do this with three, um, in terms of working, starting out writing for no money, right on spec. If you do a second draft of three screenplays, different screenplays, um, I think you've done almost all the work that you need to do before turning your attention way more rapidly to the business part of it. But in terms of writing, that, that you know, I don't think anything's lacking there. A second draft of three screenplays. I mean, you, you're just, you're better, they're better, and you have more than one thing to show, which means that you're somebody who could be hired because you keep writing. You're, I mean, you didn't just write one screenplay. I mean, how many people have written one screenplay? There's probably, you know, half this country has written one screenplay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, but that's, that is that you've earned the right to like seriously 
change your focus to hustling on the business side now. Because you've done two drafts each of three screenplays. Uh, the second of which is an enormous improvement over the first. And that, by the way, can all be done without a teacher, without an instructor or anybody. Because, and I'm not saying it should be without. It could be enhanced greatly by being part of something where an instructor is, you know, guiding you or whatever. But what I'm saying is, if you don't have that, if you can't afford that, if whatever, if you're in a town that doesn't have that, you can write three screenplays, write second drafts of all three, and you are a better writer. I don't care where you are or who's seen it. You're a better writer, and the second drafts are all better versions. That's just going to happen. So that's screenwriting without a teacher, you <laughs> so so screenwriting without a teacher you i like that uh, so basically <laughs> if you were to take that you know just take that even a step further you know just a, a person without a, a you know uh any type of you know uh manual or or anything to go by they're just you know it's just them maybe a pad of paper and a pen in a room somewhere um you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, do you, do you recommend outlining or do you think it should just be one of those cases where you just, you have an idea and you just kind of fly by the seat of your pants? Well, um, well, I was saying I hate, I hate pitching, although I have done, by the way, <laughs> there have been times when I, later I tried to start a conversation. They said, no, we're not having a conversation, Jim. What's the pitch? <laughs> so it didn't work. <laughs> but, um, Despite the fact that I hate it, I have done good pitches. Um, and outlines, I feel the same way about. I'm, I'm not very, very, very friendly to the idea of outlines. Um, and here's the reason for it. An outline is something that documents what you're going to write before you write it. Now, if you're telling your entire story before you tell your story, I mean, it fundamentally doesn't make sense. <laughs> but also, an outline is clinical. It's it's a very bloodless clinical thing. I mean, if you have an emotional scene, you just say, they have an emotional scene. Like, wow, that just, when I read that sentence, they have an emotional scene, I just broke down and started crying. You know, it's like, no, of course not. An outline has nothing in it except literal plot. I mean, you take time to maybe describe a character or whatever. You can obviously have your characters behave in their way, in a way that just makes them distinct. You can do all this stuff in an outline, but ultimately it's still clinical. Now, I can't say don't write outlines because there'll be people who hire you and they want an outline first, and you're going to write it. So, um, what I like to do is switch off my time between an outline and just some scene. Um, the scenes give me what I call the scent of blood, which means I'm I'm in there. I'm with living 
breathing people. They're starting to come alive. They're behaving and speaking. And then I can go back to the outline. And I feel like I'm creating on that other level so that it, it allows me to feel better about the outline because I know that I've got these scenes where the, these characters really are working. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, so that's what I do. I kind of go back and forth between the two things. I mean, if they need an outline by X amount of time, obviously I'm not going to be writing a lot of C on the side, but some enough to just feel like I know these people, you know, and they work and I'm excited about them. So, okay, I'll just continue with plot outline. Um, if I don't have to write it out, uh, I don't think I ever do. I don't. I, I don't consider it flying by the seat of my pants. I think that I have enough of an idea to move forward. But the thing about writing the script is if you allow yourself, you, you discover as you go. And that's really where the best stuff comes from. Something you discover. You had pre-thought it. You know, the characters were behaving and something happened. You didn't know it was going to happen. And that's when it really gets fun and exciting to do it. And that best can't be predetermined. Or it wouldn't be what I'm talking about. <laughs> right? Right. Um, but you do have to have an idea. You know, I mean, I think you have to have an idea. And I even think there's a form. This is a, there is a mutated form of outline and script that is basically both. It's sometimes it goes to full script right there in the outline. And it goes back to outline form. I think they call it a scriptment, like combining script and treatment. Um, that that could be a way that works for you. That that is definitely something you're doing for yourself. I mean, I there's, I don't think there's anybody hires you and say I want a scriptment. <laughs> you know, if they want an outline, they want an outline. But in terms of how you work on your own, I think that's that that's a viable option to do it that way at first. You know, uh, when I was talking about Chuck earlier, uh, one of the pieces of advice he gave me uh, was to, you know, uh, have have some kind of opening uh, in mind, have some kind of ending in mind, and write the end. So it kind of so whatever you're writing feels finished. And then he goes, so you have your your beginning, and you kind of envision how the the story would end. Uh, you're kind of imagining how the characters are transformed. So you're you're basically imagining this. You're not you're not like you know what has to happen, so to speak. If if I'm making this clear enough, but basically you kind of have the ending in mind, yeah, and you're yeah. you're kind of letting. Then right. you have to start filling in all those gaps of how we got from point A to point you know B or point Z really. Yeah. In the story. Yeah. I think I I think I yeah. I mean, he's got a great point. I think I think I probably just think that way. I mean, I always think like the ending because. You're, you're going in that direction. That's also why I think you should have a title. Um, my joke about it is Untitled Dirty Cop. Uh, 
porno ring pizza joint ghouls project or something <laughs> untitled and then it has all these words in it. You see that with stuff that's not titled. Um, I don't think that helps you to write something that you, it's just untitled. You know, a title points you in a lot of, everything's in the same direction. Theme, story, character, they're all going in that direction. But that title is pointing. And sometimes, you know, in the middle of the process, that title, you're holding on to that. That's, you're suspended above a huge abyss. And that's the only thing you're holding on to sometimes. So I, um, titles, think of the ending, that's all good. Because you're allowing yourself to go, okay, I'm going to get there. But I'm going to, I'm going to, discover how I get there, um, which is great. Definitely. Yeah. Cause that, that kind of takes away from the kind of, um, like you mentioned where it's kind of robotic or kind of, you know, or, uh, I guess cliched where you, you kind of have an outline and it's kind of set in stone, but the problem is it's not spontaneous. It's, it feels kind of contrived. You know what I mean? It's kind of like the, the story by formula. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not even necessarily saying an outline makes you write down cliches or, you know what I mean? You could be writing an outline with places that's really fascinating. It's just that you're not, you're not playing with behavior action, the dialogue at all, really. And you want to be in that, you know. Um. But, yeah, that's, that's but yeah point, I mean, Jim. yeah, because outlines could be completely written with, wow, every idea in this is original. I'm not saying at all that they force you to come up with cliches. Because they don't. It's just not a script. That's all. Really. It, it kind of takes the emotion out, right? Because that's what you want. You know, you want the... You that's, know, the that's what I think. Yeah, I think. I mean, unless you're going to like, go novelist on it and really, you know, because <laughs> you know, if you write a novel, yeah, then you can get all that. You can have emotions. You can have, but it's a novel. You know, I mean, an outline is just tell me what happens in this film. <laughs> That's not the same as a novel, right? It's, um, and it's certainly not the same as a screenplay. Right, right, and and that's why when I you know imagine with with that advice uh, that you just gave and you're the one that Chuck gave too, it's kind of like you can see how Fight Club kind of came together from that. Um, you know, you start off with a guy who absolutely you know has something missing in his life, and he ends with you know um, well, spoiler alert, everybody, just in case you haven't seen it yet. Um, you end up with you know him at the end with uh, with Marla, and they've just blown up a bunch of buildings in Wilmington, Delaware. Right, right. I mean, the book had a coda, which um, we just think it wouldn't have worked. But it, it, the book doesn't stop there. Uh, right, which, which is the movie? Uh, yeah, um, yeah. I mean. He, he realized he had, to, he had to create this person to be everything he couldn't 
get himself to be, you know, and then he didn't need this person anymore. And this person was like insane and playing a lot of stuff that had to be stopped. Yeah. You know? Um, but, it's kind of like um, most writers, Jim, <laughs> right? You have to, yeah. You have to create yeah. an alter ego and it kind of ends up consuming you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, yeah, that, that, that was happening to me right before you, right when you were calling. I was like, uh, right in the middle of this and I fixed it. But, you know, I was done. So, uh, all is okay. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, uh, you know, Jim, I wanted to ask, you know, uh, with, you know, we've been talking about screenwriting and everything like that, you know, uh, what, what are you currently working on? Like, I mean, oh, sorry, go ahead. What? No, no, I'm I'm sorry. I was just going to say like, you know, I, I know you can't go into details, but you know, just in general, you know, uh, what kind of projects are you working on now? Well, I mean, um, the screenplay gig so to speak, that I have is doing an adaptation of uh, actually a series of graphic novels um, that come from South Korea. And uh, we're changing, you know, I mean, we're, we're departing from the source material in a lot of ways, but it's, you know, it's a, it's, it could be put, called in the action genre, but within that I try to do as much character work as possible and make it relate to the action that's happening but there do have to be like there has to be some breathtaking action in it and uh, I, I, don't, I think I, sometimes I find that more challenging than anything it's like how, what's going to make this a different kind of moment of action you know <laughs> so um but anyway, yeah, I'm doing that, and um, let's see. There's some there's some things that are just uh, honing the pitches for television, which is more of a pitching industry. Um, and so, I don't know. I divide my time up between these things. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So basically, you know, do you decide what to work on, you know, just based upon, you know, I mean, do you juggle projects a lot is what I'm trying to say? Do you juggle projects, like, you know, multiple projects at one time? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I have. It's usually um, they're stacked. So they're sort of legally protected from each other in a way that, you know, you won't start this until this and whatever. But if that happens, but if not, if I'm just wearing one thing um, for pay, then I'm still spending some time working on ideas for other things, you know, my own ideas. Um, so uh, it gives me a lot to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Jim, I wanted to ask, are you ever going to direct your own film? Would you ever consider directing your own film? Um, I don't know. I've got about like three or four screenplays started that are that I, the impulse was that I would direct them, but I have never 
got them finished. Uh, but I probably should. Um, I've, I've done some shorts that are not really for public distribution. <laughs> they were just exercises. And um, I found that it, it was a mentality I could get into. Um, but it, you know, it does involve every single human being around you is looking at you for an answer you know, <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so um, it's intense. But um, to answer the question, I, I think it's possible. I might. So basically, did you go onto this set of Fight Club and and see like what Fincher was going through, and you were like, "There's no way I'm I'm doing that. Screw that." <laughs> well, I mean, you couldn't really tell, you know. I mean, for one thing, <clears throat> what I what I know from directing a short is you can't watch a director and know what it feels like. You can't guess what it feels like. You can't. You have no concept. Because when you're directing, then you know. There's only one way to know what it's like when everybody is looking at you for the answer and the next answer and the next answer. And that is if you're in the position. You can watch someone else, but think you could have an idea of it, and you probably have some idea of it. But you don't know until you're doing it. And, you know, I watched him and he's a master of detail. I think all this stuff came to him instinctually. It's just, it was just amazing, you know. And it had been really great just to work with him on the script. Um, meeting up and talking about, oh, let's change this, change that. That was a lot of fun. And I know that... I didn't see it, but I know it can kind of demand, you know, on the crew. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I just saw everything looking like it was being shot by a master, which it was, you know. So it was great. You know, I, I actually had on uh, uh, Bob Signs. Uh, Bob was an ex- was a actual cab driver in Zodiac, also directed by David Fincher. So uh, right. he was yeah. he was he was telling an anecdote that uh, he he so him Bob as the cab driver is is driving Jake Gyllenhaal, and they did about a hundred takes of this, and finally Jake Gyllenhaal <laughs> just just popped his head into you know he got out of the cab and this and that, so he looked in he goes to Bob he goes Bob do you want to do this anymore, and he goes what do you mean he goes do you want to do this this scene anymore because I don't. Uh, and he went up to David, like, so, and, and Jake went up to D- uh, David Fincher and goes, I just can't do this anymore. He goes, Dave, we have a hundred takes of me getting out of a cab. At some point it, it has to look good. And Dave was like, no, 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 no. And, blah, blah, blah. and then Jake, so, so Jake just goes, you know, he goes, you know what? I'm done. He goes, I, it, it's finished. And my friend Bob was still sitting in the cab. Like, should I get out or is this done? I don't know. But, uh, but, uh, yeah. Wow. Just a, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was just a funny, uh. Funny story. I told Bob. I said he should have just kind of stayed, in, you know, just kind of drove the cab off at that point and called it to, called it a day. But uh, no, he. he um, the, I think <laughs> that would actually be funny if he just drove off the set and he left. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, no, I mean, I never saw anything that intensely repeated myself. But you know, certainly he he would shoot. And sometimes it wasn't because 
you know, every take is wrong until I get the right one. Sometimes he was doing things to have choices. So he'd do them a little differently, you know. So I didn't see anything like that where you described. Um, but yeah, it reminds me, I think it's, there's a, in the 70s, you know, there was a movie where the director said, well, it was the actor who wanted to keep doing takes. The movie star, that is. And the director said, oh, okay. Well, I'm done with this for today. And he left, and the actor kept doing <laughs> the movie star kept doing takes, you know, because he, he he controlled the situation really. So, um, but anyway, that's that's it's just funny. It reminds me of that what you were saying. Uh, because yeah, you know, it's just because you know that's a mistake I made on, on just doing my short films was I didn't get different. The takes weren't different for different choices. Uh, that's something I learned, and I was like, you know, I should have did this, I should have did that. So when I started making other ones, I would make sure that different takes, you know, things were said differently. Uh, you know, there was, uh, you know, different, different, you know, reactions, big, small, stuff like that. You know, so that way you have something in the editing room to choose from when you're picking and choosing all your, uh, you're piecing all this together. Right. Right. Yeah. Um. I think it's pretty smart to do that. I, I don't know what uh, was going on with the uh, cab scene. <laughs> yeah, but, um, but I do think that, that having choices is smart. I mean, and I saw him do it. So it just seemed like, yeah, it could be this, it could be that. You know, I think that's well, pretty intelligent. Well, well, that's why I got to get David Fincher on this podcast to talk about it. So and and I'd be willing to bet you, Jim, ten dollars that he probably would say, "I have no idea what you're talking about." So because he wouldn't remember me. Well, I do. Every, everything does seem instinctual. If that's what you mean, he does seem to like. It just sort of comes out of him because he's been asked, "What you realize that this pattern and this what and the way that person behaved? Well, you must have purposely done that." And he does, like he has this look, like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> but he is doing it. it, it the, the fact that he's doing it instinctually doesn't change the fact that he's doing it. And he, he knows that he's getting what he likes, you know. Um, so he's get, you know, operating off instincts is really a good idea for him. <laughs> it just uh, worked out well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it has worked out well. Um, you know, the growth of Dragon Tattoo, uh, Zodiac, uh, Flight Club, um, and, you know, it just, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a machine. Um, definitely, definitely one of the best directors working today. No doubt about it. Yeah. So, uh, and you know, when I, when I was, when I was working with him, you know, there was, it was, it was just maybe after, slightly after a time, or maybe it was still during a time when some people were saying, you know, these visual directors, these MTV directors, you know, whatever. I guess meaning, you know, obsession with something visual or cutting a lot or I don't know what it was. And when we worked, when we sat down and talked about the script, the guy was he, 100% good at talking about everything. It's character, plot, um, you know, scene structure. It was, he was fantastic. I mean, I never saw anything he wasn't good at, actually. I mean, he doesn't particularly write himself, but I mean, I'm just saying, in terms of dealing with other people, 
that he's working artistically with. He he had everything. I mean, they were calling him. I don't know. I think I, probably after seven. I think everybody got it. This guy's amazing. Whatever. But possibly before that, you know, oh, the visually obsessed guy. Well, he isn't. He's obsessed with every part, every element of the movie. And he thinks about all of them really well. Um, and he did back then, so I'm assuming he always did, you know. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show, right? Yeah. Which is uh, which is great. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. Because um, sometimes, you know, uh, it, I remember I remember when they were saying like the MTV generation of directors, the one they always pointed to was Guy Ritchie. Um, if you ever seen Lockstock or Snatch, I don't know if you have. Oh yeah, yeah, both of them. Both of them. Oh, yeah. they were a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think they were great films. But, like, you know, when people were always saying negative things about them and, you know, in, in the reviews, it was always about how it's an MTV style of editing and shooting, et cetera. Uh, I, I just think it's – it was uh, – I, I don't agree with that assessment. I, I just think that sometimes people don't know what they're actually looking at or maybe it's a, it breaks the mold of what they're used to. It kind of uh, – it kind of uh, breaks it, – it kind of breaks that mold and they, they can't kind of handle that change if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, the time I'm talking, the period of time I'm talking about, it was kind of like that was the um, the theme to attack. You know, that was the that was the popular target for certain critics, you know, not all. But I remember that it, it sort of was its own thing. Like, oh, let's go after those MTV directors. You know, it's like, first of all, they're all different. And secondly, you know, they think about everything. I'm assuming. I mean, I I can't speak for every everyone who was accused of being that way, but you know, I think they think about everything. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I mean, and they and if anyone's talking about them, they have to be doing something right, right? <laughs> if somebody even knows your name, if somebody even knows your name, you've got to be doing something right. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Uh, I, you were, I heard the word goes and actually you know i am sort of creeping up on the time where i'm gonna have to go um oh no problem actually, I, well actually yeah. jim i was gonna say this i wasn't sure what our parameters were so i <laughs> <laughs> i told you it's it, it's uh uh it's my you know it, it's just this uh this idea that you know because we i know we had a time schedule but uh i i didn't know uh, now that you were able to go a little bit over, but uh, you know, Jim, actually, I just have one final question. And just in closing, do you want to put a, a? Is there anything you want to say that we didn't talk about, or anything you want to say now to kind of put a period at the end of this whole conversation? Um, any well, any part any parting wisdom? Anything? Well, you know, I think I did it. That was the thing I did was the three scripts for somebody starting. I mean. Um, uh, it's probably the other thing would be to read screenplays. So, I mean, and I mean a lot. Um, I have read online somebody saying that they've gotten this advice. Who's going to sit around and read? Well, no, I don't, you know, I don't think you should. It's 
spend all your time reading screenplays uh, when you're not writing. Um, but it's a good idea to have a flow of them going and kind of keep up with reading them. I don't mean keep up with as in the most current. You could be reading screenplay from the 30s or something, but just keep reading them, you know. Doesn't have to consume all your time. Doesn't have to consume that much of your time, but it's a good idea to just because I mean, you know, they are in the format, but they're different. There's different things about different screenplays. I think that, and you, you can even read. You know, there's different sort of setups you can do for yourself. Like, I'm going to see a movie, then read the screenplay. It, by the way, which is better idea than doing it the other way around because you read the screenplay then you go to the movie and you've, you've already read it so. um, or you know if it's a classic or whatever you've seen it maybe a while back go back and see what the, it's like to read the screenplay um, and uh, I think that is a good part of the exercise of learning it and it's and no I don't think anyone should be buried under a pile of scripts or something, or they're all on the computer or whatever they are, um, on the uh, pad. I don't think, I'm not saying it has to be overdone, but I think it should be sort of a steady practice, you know, because it helps. It, it could be kind of like the Fight Club uh, a house gym, where instead of, you know, reading a bunch of... Uh... Of uh, of old magazines, it's just old screenplays. They're just reading old screenplays. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But as I said, you know, I'm not telling anyone that they should overdo it. Um, like all at once, as many as possible at once. It's just just to sort of like you know, just sort of keep keep them going. That's all. You know, Jim, before we go, I, I just want to tell you a quick little anecdote uh, very quickly. Uh, one time, uh, a friend of mine uh, had to uh, – it was it was like he called me up and he goes, hey, Dave, can I ask you for, for help with something? He goes, I, ha- I have this friend. He lives you know, in the middle of nowhere and he needs some, some help with, uh, with some IT stuff and this and that. And um, I go, well – and you know, he, he talks me into it. So you know, I, I say fine because I, I did kind of sort of go in that general direction anyway um, – it was going to go past where I needed to go, but you see, you, you kind of, you kind of get where I'm going with this. So the guy on the way goes, "Oh yeah," he goes, "Their house, I call it the Fight Club house," and I go, "Why?" He goes, "Well, well, wait till you see it." So we get there, Jim, and the house was just like the house in Fight Club. It was like falling apart. There was like exposed wires everywhere, and I'm just like, "What the? Are they squatting in this house?" So eventually, the guy. So I'm helping the guy out with his computer, which thankfully, thank God, it was really, really easy. He starts telling me how Justin Bieber had been tweeting at him, and I look at him and I go, "Justin Bieber?" He goes, "Yeah, he's talking to me privately. He's on tour and he's talking to me privately." And he's like, "You want to see these tweets?" And I go, "Yes, I want to see these tweets and direct messages." And it's clearly some dude just just fucking with him. And this guy had no clue. And I'm like, all right, man, uh, you know, best of luck with that, man. And uh, wow. I got to go fix him. And, he, and he's like, hey, you should come back sometime. You know, thanks for all this help. And I'm like, no, no, it's cool, man. Yeah, I'll definitely come back sometime to the to the house. <laughs> you know, 
And uh, so I, I left there and I told my friend the whole the, – when, I, when, I, when we were leaving, I told my friend, I said, don't ever ask me to do this again. I said I, I literally felt like I was about to get stabbed in that house at any point in time. But uh, it was just <laughs> – but it was funny because it was – they, they, they called it the Fight Club house. Uh, and uh, it was just – it was just that, that – that's the anecdote I wanted to tell you, Jim. Uh, but um, – but, uh, you know, so just in closing, Jim. Well, there's uh, probably, uh, yeah, there's probably other houses like that you know, all over the country. <laughs> I, I, I've seen a few houses like that in Philadelphia because um, that's where I'm actually at. And I've seen a few houses where it's just you walk in there, the, there's, you know, waters dripping in from the third floor all the way down to the basement. Uh, and you're like, why the hell hasn't this house just been, you know, bulldozed or demolished? But, uh, you know, but uh, so just in closing, Jim, uh, where can people find you at online? There's no, there's no seeing. Um, but you know, I, I can be bad about remembering just to check in on social media. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's it. At well, you know, I mean, you and I communicated on Twitter. Is it? At W O H O J A K. Jim Ools, thank you so much for coming on, sir. Well, thank you, Dave. I'm glad we did it. It was a lot of fun. I want to thank Dave so much for doing such a great job on this episode. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 288. Thank you for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 